Welcome to the Bill Cartwright Show with Steve Cohen. Our special guest today is Executive Director of the National Public Housing, Lisa Lee. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor to be on the show with you, Bill. And I just met you, Steve, so I'm also nice to meet you. But I'm just such a fan of yours. And so this is a real thrill to be here. Well, what I'd like to know in, in a quick way is just about you and what makes you you. So why don't you tell me a little about yourself and where you grew up? Thanks. Yeah, um, that's such a great question because, you know, in my work, I'm always saying that personal stories challenge the mainstream narratives that are told in our country over and over again, which are so often the stories of just like white wealthy men. And so I'm definitely not that. I am an Asian American woman who grew up um, the daughter of two immigrants who came to the United States um, to seek more opportunities. And they were both from China, my mom, Lydia Lee, and my dad, Ju Ming Lee. And just as a side note, you know, when he came through Ellis Island, they sort of asked him what his name was. And he said, Ju Ming Lee. And they said, what? And he said, Ju Ming Lee. And they said, what again? So they said, Jimmy Lee. And he goes, yeah, that's it. So he actually was Jimmy Lee for a really, really long time until he actually like got to be around 65 years old. And he went in one day to change his license. And he was like, you know, that's not my name. My name is Ju Ming Lee. And he became Ju Ming Lee again. So it was sort of a beautiful reclaiming of his identity. But that sort of mirrors my life where they came to the United States um, like a lot of other immigrants, like way overeducated, um, seeking opportunity, but didn't speak English. And so my mom was a sort of famous young poet in Taiwan. And when she came to the United States, she didn't know the language. And so she just became an accountant with, because numbers were kind of a universal number. And sometimes people wonder why there are so many Asian people or immigrants who are in the math or in accounting fields and working with numbers. And it's not because they're like naturally good at math. I have a shirt that says I suck at math, <laughs> but it's because you know that was the language that they could actually talk in. And so um, they came, they um, ended up settling in Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie. My dad was an engineer uh, for IBM and Poughkeepsie was a gigantic um, IBM sort of plant at that time. And even when I was little, I didn't even know there were any other jobs. I just thought everybody worked at IBM. And they brought us up pretty traditionally in the sense that we ate Chinese food every single day. Um, I remember like I didn't know, I remember going to a friend's house once and having Wonder Bread and just thinking, what is this magical food? Because I just grew up eating rice all the time, you know? And so like, it was a very traditional background that way. I went to Sunday school um, all day. That was Chinese school. We weren't allowed to date, you know, anybody who wasn't Chinese, all those kinds of things. But they were also really committed to us being successful in America. And so things like museums and arts and culture were really important for them because it was like a way as Americans 
and to be like more white, I guess. And so we also spent our weekends driving into New York City and going to, you know, museums because my dad was an IBM employee. So he could get into free for, you know, the Metropolitan and everything. And I got to see, you know, the ballet and all of these things because they really felt that was an important part of our background. So I grew up in Poughkeepsie, one of three daughters and I'm the middle child. And um, that is really so much of who I am is that sort of kid of immigrants who is always like struggling to figure out like what my identity is here in the United States. Yeah. Tell me what kind of kid you were in high school. And then as that took you to college, why did you make that selection? Like one, I was not a good student. And so, you know, everybody, there was our, our high school, which was back in high school. Um, I went to public school and it was filled with, um, a, there were a lot of Asian kids because their parents also worked at um, IBM and, you know, our valedictorian, our salutatorian, they were all Chinese kids. Um, and I was nowhere near that. So I was like a very kind of B, you know, B plus kid. Um, and I loved learning, but I hated tests. I hated rules. And so I was constantly um, sneaking off, uh, going, taking the train and going to New York City and exploring. Like, so I don't know if my parents even know it. So we won't let them listen to this part of the podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I was just sort of a little bit rebellious. My older sister was a wonderful, like sort of concert pianist. And she was just had a plus all the time. And so people, I would come into the class and they would say, Oh, you're a Tina sister. You must be incredible. And they would just be like, what? You're a Tina sister. <laughs> like, How could you be? Um, but you know, my parents really valued education and that was one of the most important things. And so, you know, they ended up, my mom ended up working, um, like many, many jobs and my dad helping at night. We had a store at the mall where we sold, you know, Chinese slippers and feather earrings. And then we opened up another store at a mall that was a picture framing store. So they were always working like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Um, but it was so that we could go to college. And so the expectation was always that we would go to a good school. And so I ended up going to Bryn Mawr College, a woman's college in Philadelphia. And I would say that's really where I became who the other part of who I am today. You know, it was such a fierce feminist and political college where all of a sudden I met people who were serious about learning, but not just about getting good grades. Like they were curious, they loved the wonder of learning. And it was also a space that was protected from sort of the... Um, oppressive, you know, sort of structures of patriarchy. And so, you know, like, I was really allowed to just be who I was and to read and study. And that's where I really, I just, I fell in love with that place. And I also learned about politics, you know, and how important what was happening in the world. It was the height of, um, I'm going to date myself. It was the height of the anti-apartheid movement. And so a lot of what we were reading and studying was all about how does this relate to Nelson Mandela's struggle and the struggle of people in South Africa. And, you know, there was pushes to divest, you know, the college from investments. And that was all really new to me because when I was growing up in Poughkeepsie, I did not even think once about politics. I mean, it was sort of the 
you know, there was the height of the Cold War, but my dad is actually a staunch Republican um, back then, maybe even still now, you know, like, like a lot of the people from China who were um, anti-communist, like sort of adopted a kind of more Republican stance. And so my dad was more on that side. And so I didn't, I didn't really think about politics until I got to college. And so I was a bad kid and a bad student when I went to a good college and I sort of learned about feminism. I learned about anti-racism and the black power movement and sort of solidarity movements between different groups. And it was just so exciting and a really wonderful place to be. Talk talk about your next step um, because your education continued and why did it happen? Yeah, well, I thought I was going to um, actually become a pastor, like a religious, I, I was a religion major at Bryn Mawr and I became really committed to liberation theology. This belief that the church and the Bible as a sacred text was actually filled with the stories of emancipation and how we actually create heaven on earth by feeding people and you know making sure we end poverty. And so I actually really became serious about that. And so I was looking at programs of where to go. And so I actually got into a PhD program at Duke University and I was going to do a PhD and also a divinity um, degree there. Um, and the, the sort of you know short story is I got to do also the hotbed of Marxist literary criticism. Fred Jameson, who's one of our leading uh, Marxist literary critics was there. I was in a German studies program uh, because I loved the German philosophers and theologians. And I sort of found Marxist literary theory. And so I dumped the religion and I became a literary critic. And I ended up writing my PhD about a radical group of Jewish intellectuals called the Frankfurt School and their critique of capitalism, their critique of fascism. And so I sort of took a little bit of a left turn literally and metaphorically, and that became my field. And it was an amazing time to be at Duke. It was, well, on one side, like, well, just, I have to say that it was the years of Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley. So there was like a lot of basketball that was happening at Duke. And so it was like an exciting college to be at because there was just a lot of excitement and community that was built around sports, but also it was a really rigorous space of reading and learning. And so um, that I spent seven years at Duke getting my PhD. Um, and that was like a whole other um, moment of my life and awakening, I'll say. Well, you're about to leave Duke. Um, talk about some of your thoughts and your first job. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Well, I mean, I was working ever since I was, you know, 10 years old at my mom's store. So that's like, I've, I've always was working. And because my parents um, like helped pay for education, but we didn't have a lot more. It was, I always had multiple jobs, um, whether it was like as a home healthcare worker or like cleaning houses or things like that. But when I was at Duke, um, my last year, I was a fellow in the women's studies program there. And it's one of the most prominent women's studies programs in the country. It was led at that time by an amazing woman named Gino Barr, who really believed in like the full 
human person who's studying. And that's really, it sounds weird to say that, but most universities really have a divide between mind and body. And that's why I sort of mentioned the Duke thing, which was really interesting because it was a place where like sort of intellectual activity is really valued, but also sort of physical activity was also really valued. And Gino Barr in women's studies also really believed that we shouldn't separate the mind and body and that we had to actually pay attention to like our whole physical beings. And so like, for example, when I was at Duke, my last year there, um, I actually was pregnant and, um, and this, I was in graduate school and, you know, she was really like, you should take a nap. Like I was being paid to be a fellow there, but she was really worried about like my personhood. And it was the first time I had met like somebody who was so scholarly and, you know, intellectually rigorous who also was like, yeah, you have to take care of yourself as a human being. Um, and so when I was there, I was a fellow in the women's studies program and I helped to plan a conference, which was about domestic violence. And it was a really unique conference that brought together women who were surviving domestic violence and living in shelters and also scholars of like 19th century domestic violence who were going through court cases and people who were writing like um, fiction about domestic violence. And it was the first time that I had seen kind of the scholarly world really push up against the practice and the praxis world of people who were living and surviving domestic violence. And everybody who participated in this conference also said, this is so unique when the theory is meeting the action and we're recognizing that there's deep wellsprings of knowledge outside of the university of women who are survivors and we really should be having more dialogue. And it was such a catalytic experience to be together in a place with theory and practice that I was like, I want to do this more and more and more all the time. And just as a side note, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but like at that time I was married to someone who founded a software company and that software company went public. And so I didn't actually have to work anymore. There was like a moment of like amazing, like financial liberation. And so normally when you get a job, your first job out of college, you just go wherever there's a tenure track job. But I didn't have to do that. So I had the opportunity to think, what did I really want to do? And I thought, you know what, I want to create more opportunities where we bring together scholarship with activism. And that should happen for every single field that people are doing scholarship on. So I actually founded a nonprofit called the Public Square that was devoted to creating a more public square where universities and activist sites and media and everyday, you know, normal like citizens of the world would come together and think about and, and sort of elevate the civic dialogue and the activism that was happening around these issues. And um, that public square became part of the Illinois Humanities Council. And it was like a really formative experience for me. And so I didn't really have a first job after school in that way. I founded this nonprofit, which was, you know, the phrase public square was taken from a Cornell West um, saying where he said, you know, we have to actually put the us back into the US and be thinking about how every institution should be on the public square. And I read that and I just, and I thought, oh, really need an institution that does that. And so that was like my first experience was building a nonprofit that ended up, you know, existing for over 10 years and doing really important convenings and bringing activists and scholars together. So that was really my first job. 
about your journey um, into into being a curator in Chicago, and then talk about the um, um, Gene Adams uh, Hut House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, so when I did the Public Square, we would have events at some of the most important historic spaces and public like halls in Chicago. And one meeting we had was at the Jane Addams Hull House Museum's residence dining hall, which I learned had hosted W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Susan B. Anthony, Frank Lloyd Wright, like all these people. It was this beautiful space, but it was really closed off and it was like hard to enter it. They wanted you to put little booties on your feet, you know, because it was this beautiful space. Um, and I was like, wow, I can't believe I've lived here for 10 years and I've never been in this space. Because as a cultural activist, I would get around and I was in a lot of places, but I'd never been into that space. And they said, oh, well, you know, we're looking for a new director for the museum because we're trying to make the museum more public. It's been very much like a lot of museums where there's velvet sort of um, ropes. You're not allowed to touch anything. Everything is seen as really precious. It's this very sleepy historic house museum that has been doing a lot of good behind the scenes work, getting the collections and the objects and the archives together, but not a lot of people come. And at that time I was thinking, wow, I don't know who Jane Addams is, but I love the history of this space. And I really know something about how to make things public, how to challenge the privatization of everything that's happening now, and to make sure that people understand that these spaces belong to all of us and that a democracy depends on radical participation and openness and inclusiveness. And I think I could actually turn this place into like one of the most hop and hotbeds in the city, if not the nation. And they took a chance on me, which was incredible because when I went into my interview, I said something stupid like, oh, I love Jane Adams Hall. And they were like, that's not her name. Her name is Jane Adams. It's called the Hall House. Like the guy who actually, you know, owned the house is called Charles Hall. So I didn't know anything about Jane Adams at the time. But as soon as I took the job, I became, you know, a devout student of progressive U.S. history and learned that Jane Adams was America's first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize, but she was also considered the most dangerous woman in America at one point and had a very thick FBI file. And so as a curator, I was like, this is amazing. We should display her Nobel Peace Prize next to her FBI file and we should talk about why people consider people who are committed to peace and considered to equality so dangerous, you know? And so I was really committed to opening up that space and using objects to tell that story because we had, you know, Jane Adams's medicine kit, which could tell an incredible story about how women were consigned to bed rest and seen as nervous and like and then how women's health issues were never as important as women's health issues like we had paintings that could tell the history of lgbtq history and sort of think about um you know like how women were represented in paintings and in art so i got really a quick um crash course in using objects to tell stories which is basically 
also what a curator does, which is to take material culture in history and say, what do we not know about this object? I wanna preserve it. And an object can tell incredible stories, like a pencil can tell the story of the tree that the wood and where it comes from. And you know, sort of a whole history of logging and lumber, and if you ask the right questions. And so I worked there for around um, seven or eight years and with an incredible team of people um, we really opened up Hell House and it became a model for how museums can embrace social justice work. It can throw open its doors, become a space for activist groups to meet. Like um, we did labor meetings. We had a soup kitchen that was incredible that was run by Sam Cass and Tara Lane. And Sam eventually went to the Obama's White House and uh, started the garden with Michelle Obama there. And so it was like a really amazing time where we brought together a whole group of people to do incredible work, um, engage with the most important issues of the day. And so that's how I became a curator. And I'll just say for everyone out there who's ever like had a dream to go do something, but feels like they're not qualified, I have to honestly say, I was definitely not qualified for that job, but I really wanted it. And I said to everyone, like within five years, I will become the world's leading expert of Jane Addams in this history, because I'm gonna commit myself to study, talking, learning and listening. And, you know, that's what I did. And so through that time period, I became, you know, a progressive era scholar. I published, you know, countless, essays about Jane Addams and really popularize that history, which I still love and is so important to me today. That's incredible. So after that, you left there and talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, two things. I took another detour, which is the Jane Addams Hull House Museum which is committed to telling not just her story, but the thousands of immigrants who came through that space and all the women who organized with her um, is on the campus of the University of Illinois at Chicago. And so while I was there, um, people were seeing the work I was doing. And at that time, the art school was restructuring itself. And they came to me and said, would you like to be consider becoming the director of the School of Art and Art History at UIC? Now, this is another really strange detour because my PhD is in German studies and I'm not an art historian or anything like that. But I also thought, wow, I really believe in the idea of a public university having an art school. My mother, and this goes back to her, like this idea of like who gets to be an artist in society, right? Like she was such an important poet in Taiwan, but because she didn't have the money, she didn't speak the English, she came to the United States and that was taken away from her. And I was seeing sort of all the students at UIC, so many first generation college goers, and they would come into art class and say, oh my gosh, we love art. But my dad and mom say, I have to be a dentist. And like, how can I take art classes? And so there were all these stories of like, who gets to be an artist in our society? And I thought it was a huge opportunity for me to become at the helm of the art school and create like the world's leading public art institute, you know, that in a city which has a very elite art institute, right? And a lot of public schools don't even have art teachers, so you can't create a portfolio. And 
in order to get into art school, you have to create a portfolio many times. So for example, at UIC, you don't have to have a portfolio to get in. You just have to have the desire to be an artist. And in your first year, you work with teachers who help you create a portfolio. And then that's the one that you actually submit to graduate from art school, right? So there's all these really incredible aspects and there's amazing artists who teach at UIC who are committed to public education. And I was really excited about that. So I actually did that for like seven years. And, you know, I started a free art school in the summer and um, recruited a lot of really amazing faculty members and an amazing associate director. And we did a lot of social practice art. So it was sort of like a reinvention of myself in the art world. I became a professor of art history, even though I've never taken a class of art history, you know, and things like that. <laughs> and so I was there for a while, but in this whole time, and so this is like the very roundabout to get to my real passion and love now, is when I was the director of the Jane Addams Hallhouse Museum, a group of public housing residents came to me and said, we wanna start a house museum also, but it's not a house of a famous person like Jane Addams, it's the public housing and it's the last remaining building of the Jane Addams Homes, which was a WPA housing project on the near west of side of Chicago and can you help us? And I became the first board member at that time of this incredible institution, a site of conscience of a house museum that is a public housing museum. So not like George Washington's Mount Vernon or Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, but a house that was like tens of thousands of working class and poor people lived. And you know the residents were, that was their dream. And I said, I would help them. And so fast forward, when I was the director of the School of Art, they were looking for a new director for the National Public Housing Museum. And they asked me if I would head the search for a new director. And I started as the chair of the search. And that pretty much like within a week, I said, you know what? I know how to do this job. I want to do this job. I want to help build this civic institution, which I think can challenge what a museum is, can challenge the understanding of how an institution can be an anchor institution for stakeholders like public housing residents and can transform the, the every sort of definition of what we understand a museum to be in order for it to be the most inclusive, accessible, diverse and equitable institution in the world. And so I left the art school and I became the director of the National Public Housing Museum, which is the job that I'm doing now. So uh, talk about your biggest challenge with that because wow, what an undertaking. Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of challenges, but luckily there's a lot of people working on this project. And so the first challenge I would say is I did not grow up in public housing. And so um, that definitely, is it's not so much a hurdle, it's just something that I remind myself every single day. And going back to this idea of what I learned at Duke, that there's deep wellsprings of knowledge, both inside the academy and outside the academy. I take that with me every single day where I realize there's a lot of scholars of public housing, there's historians of public housing, but there's also public housing residents with lived experience. And that's a really important knowledge, you know? And I like to always quote the great abolitionist Miriam Kaba because we were at a book event once of hers and she writes books about prison. And somebody stood up and said, 
hey, how can you do this work? You didn't go to prison. I've been in prison and I should be the one giving the talk. And she said, absolutely, you have knowledge and you can give a talk. That doesn't mean that you have an analysis of prison. And she's like, for me, I have an analysis, but I didn't go to prison. But together we can have like the full picture, right? And so for me, that's how I come to my work every day. So that's both a challenge and also just a recognition that who I am in my background and what is the knowledge that I bring, which is I know how to create an incredibly important museum, but I don't have that knowledge of what it means to have grown up in public housing. So that's one thing. The other sort of challenge, luckily we overcame it, was getting that building because we were in a 10 plus year struggle, both with the CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority and HUD um, to get that building. And it took a really a village of public housing residents and activists and preservationists to convince HUD to deed that building over to us. And so I'm very happy to say we assumed ownership of the building and also um, the lease of the land for 99 years for $1 from CHA. So I really thank them for that, um, but also the activists who helped to make it happen. So that was one thing. And then the sort of biggest, biggest challenge, which is also what I see as the most fun part of my job is reminding the world that never again will a single story be told as if it's the only one. And when I say that, it's because when you say the words public housing, most people, it conjures up something in their imagination. And what it conjures is usually a stereotype which is laced with racialized stereotypes about what it means to be poor, what it means to be black, and what it means to basically um, be accepting government assistance, right? And those stereotypes are filled with racism and misconstrued notions and also a single mainstream narrative. And so what I see my job is, is a call to our nation to have a much more inclusive foundation for the stories that we accept as public housing stories and to sort of tell the stories of collective joy, tell the stories of systems of networks of people who supported one another and to ask what have we not yet learned from public housing history that we can take with us in order to create a much more collective future and an innovative solution for housing insecurity, which is one of the biggest issues facing us today. And so that's both the challenge and also like the incredible fun of my work because I get to hear so many amazing stories and work with so many amazing people who grew up in public housing. And I feel like those stories can change and transform who we are as people today and also can come up with really important solutions for our neighborhoods and our cities and segregation issues, gentrification issues, and a whole host of things that we should be grappling with as a people. Okay, uh, we got two things here. I know Steve wants to ask a question and also yeah. I think you have some uh, audio that you want to play. I do. Thanks so much for asking. So one of the things that the National Public Housing Museum does is we actually gather the stories of public housing residents through oral history. Now in the museum field, mostly the objects that have been preserved are those of really wealthy white individuals because in this country, 
museums and institutions of higher learning are the ways that the so-called 1% have really preserved their power and privilege. And so the objects of poor people are normally not saved and the histories aren't written. And so oral history is a really important methodology that's used. And so we have oral history training program that we train oral um, public housing residents in the media strategies and the tactics and how to ask questions. And when we gather those stories, we create podcasts and we're on the radio in Philadelphia and other places. And so um, one of the stories that we've collected is from Gil Walker, who is uh, who ran the CHA um, recreation program for a really long time, which was one of the leading um, sort of sponsors of Midnight Basketball, which was a really super cool program that um, he's going to talk a little bit in this uh, piece that I'm going to play for you, okay? It's is called Play Ball, Sports and Athletics in Public Housing from the National Public Housing Museums out of the archives. Yes, the National Public Housing Museum. We thank you for tuning into our listening series, Out of the Archives. In each episode, we'll share a diverse range of stories told by public housing residents, as well as those working in the field from our oral history archive. Each episode features a different theme and response to our mission to preserve, promote, and propel the right of all people to a place where they can live and prosper, a place to call home. Stories make up the backbone of any culture. They tell us who we are and where we are from, they create empathy and understanding, and they allow us an opportunity to share our experiences and learn from the words of others. The stories in this archive lift up the voices of an oftentimes marginalized community and create a space for more important conversations to happen. In this episode, Play Ball, Sports and Athletics in Public Housing, former public housing residents and housing authorities a range of stories about how late night games of basketball would make a positive impact on communities and how diligent practicing could be life-changing. The storytellers you will hear from include Olympic boxer of the Robert Taylor Homes, Leroy Murphy, James Purgatorio of the Jane Addams Homes, the former director of programs of the Chicago Housing Authority, Gil Walker, and former WA superstar of Monview Heights, Tanisha Wright. The story spanned from 1943 1993. My name is Gil Walker, and uh, I'm the former director of programs of the Chicago Housing Authority. And Slane, who was the uh, executive director of the Chicago Housing Authority at the time, happened to be in New York on a particular occasion. And Vince saw this program called the Midnight Basketball League. Asked me to investigate the program. He thought it was a program that we could use here in Chicago. The reason being because uh, at that time, there were, and as it is now, there were a lot of violence and uh, anti-social behavior going on with young men between the age of 17 and 26. And so we were trying to look for some type of programs, if you will, that could service and, and, and deal with those guys on a positive level. So we were investigating all types of things to try and do. So I went to New York and went to Leonard uh, uh, Maryland to take a look to see what GBAS Stanford was doing. And I thought it was a wonderful program. However, however, it wasn't a program on the level that I thought that could be in Chicago. Now, 
we use the same components that he, he did because he saw that crime was really prevalent between the hours of 10 to 2. Why 10 to 2? Because young men, and then he saw that young men committed the crimes in the northern North Maryland, which by the way was a close-knit Republican community. <clears throat> so the, the profile showed that between the hours of 10 to 2, young men between the ages of 17 to 26 were committing crimes at that time. Point being because between the ages of 17 and 26, young men, young women too, <clears throat> should be in the house studying if you come. But most are out partying, uh, having a good time. But some were doing negative things. I submit to you that if in fact you don't have anything positive, positive to do between the hours of 10 to 2, you're going to do something negative. So, Ms. G. Van Stanford used basketball to get those guys off the streets into the gym. And they saw a dip in crime in Glenarm So now looking at all those components and statistics that he used, how's that program going to work in Chicago? First. All right. Sorry. That goes on, but I want to invite people to go listen to that incredible episode. Um, it's on Spotify. It's on the MPHM out of the archive series. And there's just, I mean, so many um famous ball players grew up in public housing like Tony Allen, Alonzo Mourning, Julius Irving, Stephen Marbury, and a lot of them participated in Midnight Basketball and it was a really important space. And so it's those kinds of stories that we're also trying to get out into the realm so people think about public housing in a different way. Steve, what's your question? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's very admirable what you're doing. It's not easy. You seem to continue to focus on the flowers, not the weeds of what you're doing. It's not easy. There's a lot of misconceptions. I, I mean, I have a few. One I would say is, you know, you're in Chicago and people always kind of cast dispersions on like the crime over there and the crime that you see play lots in public housing. And what are your thoughts on how it can be improved yeah, that's a really important question. And that's one of the issues that the museum is also tackling. Because I think sometimes the focus on crime in Chicago doesn't actually go to the root problem and it's not radical enough. And when I use the word radical, I use it in the way that all the civil rights era um, leaders would use the word radical, which is the original definition, which is like the radical square root. Like it's a math term, which means you're going to like the very basic problem. So the radical solution to crime is to ask what is the root problem, which I would submit has to do with the lack of housing, the lack of jobs and the lack of resources in so many different communities in Chicago because of institutionalized and systemic forms of racism, which pour resources into certain neighborhoods and zip codes and not into other ones. And you know, people always say these days um, in the COVID crisis also, that like your zip code matters more than your DNA code, right? Because actually where you live and the kind of segregation and the sort of lack of resources in certain communities is what determines your ability to live or die. And crime is this exact same way. Now, the other thing that I would also say that is really important when you study the history of public housing that we learn about crime and also the prison industrial complex and sort of the jailing of young black men that happened in public housing communities 
is the sort of policing of these spaces and how they were filled with police acting with impunity, corrupt police, not actually doing the job of creating real public safety. And so I think public housing allows us to ask different kinds of questions, which are like, you know, why were these spaces unsafe, right? And they were unsafe because of the bad policing practices also in addition to gangs and other things that were happening, right? So it's sort of like us being much more willing to open our minds to asking root problems, questions, and to be much more radical in how we're thinking about the solutions. So um, I do feel like institutions like the National Public Housing Museum can become inclusive civic spaces for us to you know, sort of look back on history and say, what are the stories that we're not telling, but not just that it stays in history so that it can actually inform the creative, innovative solutions that we, and also the demands, because the thing about social change that is so important is, and the places like a museum, you have to also say what we're for. And in order to say what we're for, we have to unleash our radical imaginations and be able to come up with solutions. And we need collective spaces like that to do that kind of work. And that's what I'm hoping the National Public Housing Museum can be. Lisa, talk about your family. Well, I have an amazing family, which includes um, the people I've already mentioned, but also I am married to a great guy now. I I got divorced and I got remarried um, five years ago to an amazing guy named Adam Bush, who is the provost of a very amazing college, which is creating opportunities for people who have not um, had the opportunity to finish college. And I have two kids, um, one who is studying for the LSAT right now. Now, um, but also is an incredible athlete. And so he's about to do an Ironman also in a couple of weeks. And so our whole day is just him eating a lot of food and a lot of protein products and then studying a lot for the LSATs, which are next week. And then I have an amazing daughter who's at Barnard. So I'm happy to say I have a daughter who's following in the woman's college tradition, who's in New York and loves her studies. And she's also just like incredibly political and engaged in anti-racism work and um, fighting the prison industrial complex. And so, um, and then I'll just say one last thing, which is Chicago is amazing space because there's so much chosen family. And so I'm also just like surrounded with a group of great activists and cultural makers and artists who I also consider so much part of my family. And I would say also the people I get to meet in my work, like you, Bill, who I'm very much consider a part of the National Public Housing Museum family as well. So yeah, it's a big, generous family with a lot of people. <laughs> Lisa, we thank you so much for being on. Your journey has been incredible and amazing and you're still doing uh, phenomenal work. So thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's a uh, pleasure for Steve and I to have you on and we're looking forward to visiting you. Yes, please come to Chicago. I want to invite everybody to learn more about us at www.nphm.org. And we are in the final phases of our capital campaign to open up the museum in this last remaining building. So anybody who might be interested in helping us um, donating their story of growing up in public housing uh, to the archive, uh, which is now supported by the Mellon Foundation and considered a leading 
Maine Community Archive. I want to invite you to contact me and contact uh, staff at the museum and to join onto our mailing list so that we have tons of programs also. So uh, I want to meet all of you and I really loved being on the program with you. Thank you so much, Stephen Bill, for doing this. Thank, Thank you. you. Congratulations.